Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, the host of this podcast, and I'm so excited to have you here. A bit about me, I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur and investor who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. The Dear 20-something podcast started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful changemakers they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts, we're here to humanize the whole thing. You'll hear from successful trailblazers who will share the highs and lows of their 20s, and you'll also get words of wisdom from some experts who will speak on a certain topic relevant for 20-somethings. And then sometimes it'll just be me, on the mic, hosting an episode where I share recent reflection or story from my own life, as I too am navigating this wild decade. We're so happy to have you here. Let's get started. Today on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with Christina Wallace. A self-described human Venn diagram, which I might be copying by the way, Christina Wallace has crafted a career at the intersection of business, technology, and the arts. After a decade as a serial entrepreneur, she joined the faculty of Harvard Business School, where she's the course head of the first year entrepreneurship class and runs the HBS Startup Bootcamp. Her latest book is The Portfolio Life, How to Future-Proof Your Career, Avoid Burnout, and Build a Life Bigger Than Your Business Card. A frequent public speaker on topics including entrepreneurship, failure, and women in tech, Christina is also known for her viral TED Talk on using a sales funnel for online dating, which is incredible, and her TEDx talk about portfolio careers and the future of work. A business and creative nonfiction writer, she co-authored New to Big, a book about corporate innovation with David Kidder and has been published in Forbes, Quartz, the Detroit Free Press, Time and L, among others. An enthusiastic yet mediocre marathoner and erstwhile mezzo-soprano, Christina lives in Cambridge with her husband and two kids. I can't wait to chat with her and share her story with you now on Dear 20-something. Please welcome Christina Wallace. Hey, Christina. Hi, happy to be here. <laughs> How is it hearing? I love, so for those who don't know that are listening, I read the bio in front of the guest. It's like a very intentional choice because I could easily record it like later, but I like watching the guests just sit and just relish in their accomplishments because we don't often do that. Like when do we sit and read our own bio? So how did that feel hearing it back? It was good. You know, I spend a lot of time tweaking that over the years and, and changing out a sentence here and there and refining it over time. So it feels like it, uh, it gels. Good job, me. Good job, you. And you got so much variety. I love this human Venn diagram line. I think that that is something I'm taking. And, you know, everything from the public speaking to the companies to the teaching, we'll, we'll get into all of it, but a very well-rounded life, which is very exciting. Okay, so before we get into it, I like to ask every guest a fun question to start, bit of an icebreaker, if you will. And you can take this as serious as you want or as like light and fun as you want. It's totally up to you. What is something new you learned in this past week? So I have two young children, almost one and three, three and a half. And my three and a half year old, she's freaking brilliant. Like it's a little terrifying. She's maybe too smart for her own good. And she is teaching me a lot about PJ Masks, which is a superhero show about three little kids who become superheroes at night while they're in their PJs. And there's a whole lineup of bad guys. So I'm learning about like this whole universe uh, that like the three-year-olds all seem to know about, that she like chats with the kids at school. She like role plays a lot of this out. So she's really convinced that she is Owlette 
a female owl. Apparently, it needs to be an owlette. And she has cast me as Luna, the bad villain of the night. She's cast her father as one of the other superheroes. So I don't really know Mm. what that's about. We can go to therapy for that one. We can dive deeper into what Mm -hmm. that means. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But she's like ready to direct this whole production. So I'm getting getting smart of the three-year-old superhero universe. I will say I'm always so impressed by the thoughtfulness of the cartoons these days. Like, I'll be honest. So I loved cartoons. I have a sister, which is, as I mentioned, I'm at her place right now. And we used to sit and watch these cartoons. And I, when I really think about it, there was no real lesson, no real story. I don't think there was any thought put into it. It was just like, throw some animations on a screen and like, they're going to the market today. Or like, it was just nothing. And now there's, I, I see these cartoons, like some of my friends have kids and I don't, but it's so interesting, like the thought and like the morals that you're supposed to take from it. And what does it mean to really be a superhero on the inside? And like all those things, I'm like, wow, good for good for TV nowadays, you know, good for the next generation of kids. There are some better than others. Like Bluey is a, a fantastic show out of Australia, seven minute episodes about this dog and her little sister, Bluey and Bingo, great, fun, like lots of little in-jokes for parents. Coco Melon? Mm-mm. Coco Melon has been banned. We have gone into the Netflix and have disappeared it. It is these terrible sing-songy, it's almost like really bad recitative from opera. Like it's, it's, there's no melody, there's no rhymes. It's like, it's terrible. It's terrible. But kids freaking love it. And so we've had to disappear it. Good choice. Good choice. I think it's It's a whole range of things. I think you have to, as a parent, be like, there's a range of what you're willing to tolerate hearing over and over in the background, right? Because that's what ends up happening. These songs get stuck in your head. These characters, you learn about their universe. So yeah, just being like, listen, if I don't like the show enough, it's it's off. It's done. You got to like 50% think it's, it's, it's good just, enough. Yeah. It's gone. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, well, thank you for <laughs> teaching me. I will one day be a Rolodex of kids shows. Not quite yet. But I feel like, you know, a good a good blog post or a good post for you is like, you know, what are the kids shows to watch and not to watch? I feel like you're full of knowledge. The way you're thinking about it feels spot on to me. So... Yeah, I feel like I could do that. You know, like when people leave New York and they move anywhere else and they're kind of like, okay, let me explain to you like the West Village of Chicago and like the Upper East Side of like Des Moines. I feel like I could do this for those of us who had our own lives and personalities and now have children and have to live in the world of kid shows. I can be like, let me explain to you what like the friends of kid TV is. Yes. This is the glee. It's like very, the cocoa melon is the glee and like, you just got to shut it off. You can't. Yeah. That's so funny. I love that. Well, thank you for answering. I'm excited to uh, learn more about you and how your opinions came to be and how you see the world. Maybe we can start with like childhood. Just go right, go right into it. You know, the show is a lot about how people grew up and worked in their twenties. A lot of our listeners are between like 18 and 35. And so they're just kind of right in it, in the like, oh, we're figuring everything out. And so obviously, as you know, a lot of this stuff is determined by childhood. So would you mind telling me like, where'd you grow up? What'd you want to be? Sort of the quick background on Christina. 
So I grew up in Lansing, Michigan, in a kind of a working class family. My mom was a secretary. My grandpa built cars on the assembly line. And my grandma was a stay-at-home grandma. And uh, I have an older sister, Stephanie, and we were the Wallace sisters. We were sort of like this, this duo. I loved it. She hated it. Obviously, I'm the younger sister. And we spent our childhood really in two things. We were immersed in classical piano from a very early age. We both started at like four or five years old. And we were both kind of math geniuses. And, and I use that term slightly pejoratively, like we were in a tiny school. So we were, we were good in like a class of 18 students. But we really kind of excelled in both of those worlds and spent our entire childhood really kind of in those two pursuits. We weren't into sports. We weren't that popular. <laughs> we we mostly played piano and did math. And it was never really uh, proposed as like one or the other of them had to be my focus. Like I, I, I could and wanted to kind of live in both worlds simultaneously. I ended up going off to boarding school for the arts my last two years of high school at Interlochen Arts Academy and was captain of the math team while I was, you know, playing piano and picked up cello and sang in choirs and sort of did the whole classical music thing. But I kept being asked like, okay, okay, at some point, like, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I was like, all the things. Like, literally, I think my answer in the fourth grade was like, I'm going to be a professor, an astronaut, an author, and president, all at the same time. Like, the all at the same time was crucial. I wanted to do a little bit of a lot of things, and I didn't see that as a problem. But as I got older and I went to college, I ended up deciding to go to university instead of conservatory. I loved performing. I didn't love practicing so much. And there's a point at which <laughs> you you can't really phone it in anymore if you're, if you're going off to conservatory. So I went to college instead and double majored and triple minored and sort of did all the things, continued all the way through college. And, you know, I wanted my money's worth. I went to Emory University. You pay a flat tuition. You take 12 credits, you take 22 credits. It doesn't matter. It's the same price. And I was like, I'm paying for college. I'm getting my money's worth. So I, I like maxed out as much as I could every semester. And I learned a lot and, and still sort of refused the idea that I had to pick one thing to focus. And that worked all the way to the point of graduation. And then I had to get a job. <laughs> and, and I was like, oh, okay. So I've been doing, uh, you know, a handful of things. I, uh, as an undergrad, I'd been working as a stage manager for the theater department. I'd been singing uh, as a professional chorister in a big church in Atlanta. And I had been working in a physics lab, doing some research, like made money doing all these things. And I was like, okay, what do I do? And I, at that point, decided that I was going to apply to uh, PhD programs in math, and I was going to apply to jobs in the arts in New York City. And I would just sort of let the universe tell me which thing I should do rather than making the decision myself. <laughs> Wait, please tell me you've seen Gilmore Girls. I have. And you know, Liza does have, this yes. with med school and law school. She's so, she's like, I can do both. I'll see where I get in. I'll see where I get in. So I got into a, a handful of PhD programs and I went to go visit. Her name was Paris. And I remember. Wait, was her name Paris? Yes. Her name is Liza's the actress. Paris Geller. Paris Geller mm -hmm. is the name. Okay. But her name in real life is Liza. Okay. Keep going. Sorry. Yes. Uh, I had to clarify. 
<laughs> Love that show. So I went and visited a, this one particular PhD program. And I went there being like, okay, I got in. I'm probably going to go here. Like, let's be serious and figure out if this is a good fit. And I showed up to tour the place. And this one student, a fellow grad student, he's sort of this tall, skinny mountain man with like head-to-toe denim. It was a vibe, okay? It was a vibe. And he just scans me up and down and was like, you know, if you go here, you have to actually do work and not just stand there and look cute. No. And I was like, excuse me, what? Like, yes, I showered and I put on a skirt. It doesn't mean I'm an incompetent mathematician. It was just such a reaction. And then I looked around and I saw there were there was maybe one female faculty in the entire math department. There were only a handful of female grad students. And I was like, oh, I don't, I don't know how I'm feeling about this. And then I go and sit down with the head of the department who would have been my advisor. And he goes, I have to be honest, you know, we let you in, <laughs> but I'm looking at your resume. I'm looking at your letters of recommendation. Like you had a letter of recommendation from a theater professor. We have never had that ever in the history of this math program. And I have to ask, like, if you come here and do a PhD, you're going to have to focus on one esoteric, super narrowly defined problem that like maybe a dozen people in the entire world care about. And you're going to have to focus on that for like seven years. Can you do that? <laughs> it's a good wake up call. And I was like, it's a really good wake up. Oh, call. no, I cannot. You are correct. This is a very bad choice for me. And I was like, great, we're not going to go to a grad school. We're going to move to New York and we're going to get a job in the arts. <laughs> and so I did. Very wild, but so good that you saw it through. I think so often people discount themselves. They don't apply. They don't, but you really saw it to its very end where you're like in front of the person that is like going to like open the gates. And yeah, I think it doesn't, I mean, just even knowing you now for about 10 minutes, it just, there's something to be said for like people just flourishing in certain environments and you could have done it, but I can see that you care about people and you care about the real world and you care about, I mean, if you're like to perform, you care about the impact you'll have on others. There's something about the like PhD in a room. Like I met someone who got a PhD in math and what she said, she said, algebraic topology of neural networks. Something like, you know, I think that like that doesn't even just, it's like, there's something about a fit too, where it's like, if to be your fullest self, you can go to a place and be like, ah, this isn't me. Like, yes, you can be super cute and you can be super whatever. Like, are you going to flourish? And I think that like this, this guy that was kind of sitting there probably saw like, oh, wow, she's like larger than life. And like, this maybe isn't, even though she's so good at math and she could do it and you would probably do very well. Is this like the best choice for you? Yeah. The fit is such a key thing that, that I did not really learn until kind of the end of my 20s. Like it took a couple of tries on this. And it's not just about, you know, what you can do, exactly what you said. It's like, where are you going to flourish? Where are you going to feel like the best version of yourself? Where you're like, I'm really good at this. And I'm, and they want what I have to offer. I think that is so crucial. You're like, I can give you all these things. And if you don't want them, if you want this tiny little piece of me, that I'm going to feel like, I'm not using 60, 70, 85% of what makes me amazing. And the piece that you do want, like I might not be the best at that compared to someone else you could have there. So I, I talk about this in my work as sort of figuring out your strangely shaped puzzle piece. 
Like we're all strangely shaped puzzle pieces. And I, I really embrace that weirdness. I, I enjoy being an, a, a weirdo. But part of this is figuring out kind of what your little curves and angles and nooks and crannies are. Because when you try to put yourself into a puzzle where you're like, there's a hole and I'm available and like, I can be that puzzle piece and you don't fit, then your options are like, okay, well, let me like mash off a corner of my puzzle piece to like smash it in the puzzle, which you can do, or you can find where you actually fit. And the more you're aware of exactly the shape of your piece, the faster you're going to recognize when you do fit. This is true in jobs. This is also true in relationships. So that became one of the biggest things when I met my husband. I had a terrible string of bad dates in my 20s. Just like dating in New York in your 20s, it's the worst. But I had to learn a lot about the type of person I was and the type of partner that I needed in order to identify what is the right partnership for me and like who's going to be a good fit for my strangely shaped puzzle piece and really embrace that rather than try to hide it or apologize for it or fix it. You know, like you don't have to fix yourself. You just need to know who you are and what you need and then look for what wants that. I love that. It's doing the work too, right? Of like being like, who am I? What am I good at? What am I not good at? And also I have this big thing where like asking trusted close people in your life also for feedback on like who you are, what do you think I'm missing? And then interviewing back the other person, which I think is another crucial part of this, right? Like when it comes to partners and it comes to jobs, you know, just because someone likes you doesn't mean you have to like them. Like, and I feel this way so strongly. Oh my gosh. That took me a long time to figure that out. <laughs> yeah, but that's that's the journey. I constantly thought I was auditioning for them and it didn't even occur to me that like they were also auditioning for me. Yeah, I think that's something that like we really should hammer home. Like people right now, if you're feeling like, gosh, like I can't get a job, I can't find a partner, I can't whatever. Like maybe it's because you just are waiting for the first one to say yes to you when in reality you should be thinking about what do I want and are they good enough for me? Switch it up, get the confidence. Like, you know, it's like, well, I'm considering you. Okay, you're considering me. Okay, I'm considering you. Wait, I'd love to hear just a quick side note on your partner, your husband. How did you guys meet? What was like that? that moment when you were like, oh, he's the perfect fit to my puzzle piece. I, I love hearing those, those stories. So this is where my TED Talk came from. I, what, I had I know, hit 30, 31, and I was like, look, I am really good at the work side of my life, and I am really bad at the relationship side of my life. So I'm going to apply my work brain to solve the relationship problem. And I literally took myself on a relationship offsite. I went camping solo in Maine for a week. And I brought a notebook and I made a fire and I spent all this time reflecting and journaling and doing a retro on like why other relationship hadn't worked out. And I, I came up with this sort of understanding on what I actually valued in a partner, what I was looking for. And then the, the list of sort of proxies that I had been using up to that point as like a sign, an early signal 
that they were the right fit for me. And I was using all the wrong proxies. I was doing a lot of online dating. This is very common in New York. I didn't want to date anyone in my industry and I didn't want to date anyone in my friend group. And so if you want to meet strangers, like that's how you do it. And so I was using all of these things like where they went to school or how tall they are or what neighborhood and subway stop they live off of as proxies. And I was like, those things don't actually matter. What matters is like, are they kind? Are they curious? Are they going to challenge themselves? Are they adventurous, right? Like that's what I'm interested in. And so I designed this sales funnel for my dating activity, created these sort of criteria, the qualifying criteria that would get you in the top of my sales funnel and move you down through the process. And then I just made Wednesdays date night. And I set up what I called my zero date, my the date before the first date. And this was one drink, one hour, with the goal of answering one question, do I want to have dinner with this person? That's the only answer I need to get to at the end of this hour. And on Wednesday nights, I would do three dates in a row with three different guys. And I would just like a 5.30, a 7.45, like a 9.30 as like, this is my screening funnel. Because I wanted to get offline. I wanted to get out of that like incessant texting back and forth. But I knew that like once I met them, I would know really quickly if we were a fit or not. And so I set up this whole process and I ended up meeting my husband through that. And I'm glad that I went through kind of understanding the things that weren't a fit because like he's two years younger than me and I had had a hard bar on like I would only date men that were older than me. He is the same height as me, which in online dating world, typically men lie about their height. And so I would not have trusted that I'm six feet tall. He said he was six feet tall. I'd be like, "Mm, you're 5'10". No, he really was. And so he was also a lawyer and I had sworn off lawyers. So like all of these things that I had been using to funnel and filter weren't actually good filters for me. And I would never have met him if I hadn't gone through this process. So he ended up being my second of three on that particular Wednesday. And at the end of the hour, I liked him enough that I canceled my third and we stuck around for another five hours. And uh, (laughs) he kissed me on my doorstep at like one in the morning and we've been together ever since. Oh my gosh. And everyone thought it was so awesome that you gave a TED Talk on it so that the world can now benefit from your sales funnel. I mean, here's the thing. If it works, it works. I have had a number of messages from folks, strangers all around the world who have applied this and have met their now life partner through this methodology. So at least it works in heterosexual relationships. I I don't have any data points yet if it works in uh, in same-sex relationships. Yeah, but but it's worth a shot in any relationship. Worth a shot. I love this idea. I will say everything you're saying, like maybe swearing off lawyers and like maybe only dating people much older and maybe I'm like, oh, yikes. Like this is really just right hitting home. I really like this process. And I think too, like there's phases of life, right? So like you can be in your twenties and you're so career focused and that's okay. And then there's phases of life where like you do want to have a partner and maybe like you feel like, oh, biological clock is maybe ticking a bit too. Or, and then like, okay, let's set up a process. We need to get this like sorted. And I think it's okay. Like if people are listening to like, you don't necessarily need a partner tomorrow, but like, if you decide you do want one, this might be a, a good approach. Watch the talk, set up some dates. I like it. You're making me think differently. There's nothing wrong about being intentional about going after what you want. I think there's maybe sometimes a little bit of like stigma around being intentional on dating. And it's kind of like, oh, what's wrong with you that that you can't just like 
magically run into someone at a bar and like suddenly be soulmates. And I was like, no, I wouldn't get a job that way. I wouldn't buy a car that way. Like why, why would I think about a life partner that sort of lackadaisically, like I'm going to put intention behind it because it matters a lot. It's the most important choice you're going to make around your future happiness, the future like success for your career, all of these things. There's all of this research that shows your choice of a life partner absolutely impacts all of these other pieces of your life. So put as much intention and process behind it as you do anything that matters to you. I love it. And and you're speaking to someone who's obsessed with process. And like I have sales funnels running for things that I shouldn't because I just like organization and to not leave anything hanging. So it's very refreshing to hear. I love it. Tell me about this other TED Talk too, while we're on the topic of TED Talks, and then we'll continue talking about your 20s. But most people, if they're lucky, will give one TED Talk, right? And then if they're really not lucky, it's just smart, interesting, we'll give two. So give me, give me the rundown on the second one. And I know that the second one is closely tied to the book that you wrote, which is one of the reasons you're here too. Want to talk about that too. Yes. The second one I actually gave first, and it is around portfolio careers. I think it's called The Future Belongs to Human Venn Diagrams, which as you might notice is a very self-serving title since I define myself as a human Venn diagram. But it's this idea that for a long time in human history, people were polymathed. You had to do many things. And that it really wasn't up until the point of kind of the industrial revolution, the invention of mechanized labor and the assembly line and sort of all of this really about 60 or 70 years of the business world, starting with kind of the beginning, the turn of the century, where people needed to become super specialized and focus on doing just one thing, to become literally like a cog in a wheel, right? And up until that point, we had uh, the agrarian, the artisan economy, we had the entire world of like Leonardo da Vinci and all of these folks who did all of these different things. And that was part of, of having a full, fulfilling life, right? And so this notion that we now have this, you know, this idea that you're going to like pick one thing and 16 or 17, you're going to major in it in college, you're going to get your first job, and then you're going to like follow this ladder up through a career trajectory that you're going to do for your whole life. It's not true anymore. And it wasn't true for a very long time. And it was only true for like a couple of generations. And so it's a model that doesn't work. It's also a model that a lot of us don't want, right? Like it doesn't fit this idea that like who I am at 18 is not going to be who I am at, at 48. And so the good news, bad news in this world of like constant disruption is you can't follow the path that your parents and your grandparents followed. And also like that's incredibly freeing. You don't have to follow that path. And so instead it's this idea of how can you uncover the different worlds and networks and skills that you love, that make you you, and piece together a portfolio. This is really where the book kind of started from. Piece together a portfolio of paid work, hobbies, growth opportunities, relationships, rest, all of the pieces that make up your life. How do you think about it holistically? And crucially, when and how do you rebalance that portfolio when you need something different? We go through seasons of our lives. Like this is, you're never locked into like, oh, well, 
I'm down this path now. You're like, great. And the world changed. You changed. Let's mix it up. So it's this notion of like, how do you build how do you build a, a model that works for you and that works for the world that we're in? I really like it. What What's like the biggest advice for starting this? I mean, I imagine a lot of it's like, open the book, go through the exercises, do the thing. But for someone that maybe is like feeling not fully fulfilled in the work that they're doing, maybe it feels more one-dimensional, right? Which is kind of like the root of the issue here. What would you say is like that first step or that piece of advice for them to figure out how they can find something that's a bit more of like a unique blend of their interests? So the nice thing is sometimes that good enough job is exactly what you need and that maybe what you're missing, you don't need to get from your work. Maybe what you are missing, you can find in other ways. So one of the things that that I emphasize in the book is there are lots of different models for how this works. For some folks, this is I have a day job and then I moonlight on the side, whether that's paid or or not. Maybe it's just like a really serious hobby that I'm really excited about and I don't want to monetize that. And I like the one-dimensional, super predictable, kind of boring job. Like that's what Einstein had. He was a patent officer in the Swiss patent and he loved it because it was really unchallenging. <laughs> like, And that was a great fit while he was imagining all of the physics of the world in his brain. So that might be one piece where you say, okay, what do I get from the work that I'm doing? What does it give me? Well, maybe it gives me stable, predictable hours. That's really valuable in some cases. Maybe it gives me health insurance. <laughs> maybe it gives me, you know, enough of a baseline income that covers my needs and gives me the space, emotional and time space to do other things. But maybe what it doesn't give me is a creative community or challenging or an opportunity to like try this other piece of my skills that I'm really interested in. Okay, so how could I bring those into my portfolio? Is there a class that I want to take, a community I want to join, a company I want to start, a hobby I want to get further uh, into and be a little bit more serious about, a little more process driven on? How do I want to bring those elements into my life? And then after you go down that path, there might be a point where you say, okay, I think I'm ready to make this side thing my main thing and step away from the good enough job, right? But it doesn't mean you quit that job on day one and say, okay, I'm going to go start this business. It's like you can rebalance that mix after you've had a chance to explore it, de-risk it, build a little bit more and say like, where do I go from here? It could also be as you're developing this skill on the side that you say, oh, there's a role where I could bring this side skill into my day job, whether it's at your existing company or somewhere else who say, actually, I want to think about this diagonal career jump rather than something a little more linear. And you can make this all together fit in your day job. So there are lots of ways that you can put it together. The crucial thing is having a clear sense of what do I need and what do I want and which of those things are currently being met and where do I have gaps that I need to fill. And then when am I ready to make a bigger change and rebalance, reshuffle kind of the mix of things in my portfolio in order to meet the needs and fulfill those wants? I love it. I think no one talks enough about how you can pursue your interests and your hobbies and your things outside of work. 
there is this expectation that like work is supposed to be this like all encompassing fits your perfect Venn diagram. You know, your, your business tech arts. Okay, great. You need to find a job that's directly at the heart of that. When in reality, that's very hard. And you might actually make a bunch of money if you get a job in, let's say, business. Then on the side, you love the arts. And then you explore tech. Like you can figure out that blend. And I love this idea of like it coming in all shapes and sizes, like classes and hobbies that you monetize, hobbies that you don't. What what was your experience with like coming up with this framework? And I would imagine giving a talk on this, there was probably something that you went through. Also knowing your journey as both, you know, the classical pianist and the mathematician, like and performer, right? At what point did you come up with kind of this like matrix? And did you have a moment where you were like, I need to rebalance because I'm not fulfilled enough? Yes, to all of the above. So I I moved to New York. I got a job on the management side at the Metropolitan Opera. And this is post-grad. And it sounds... This is your job. This is post-graduation. This is, this is my first job out of college. I moved to, to New York and I literally sent out, this is back in the, the olden days of 2006, where we sent paper resumes. I sent resumes to 50 job postings on the New York Foundation for the Arts website. And I, I mean, I, I applied for literally everything. I applied to be a finance assistant at an art gallery. I apply, like, I have no background in finance, but I, I have a math degree. I'll figure it out. I applied to be, uh, you know, a, a stage manager for like a children's choir. I, I literally was like, if there is anything, if I think I'm interested, I don't really care if I'm qualified. I'm going to try, which is a very male <laughs> mindset. <laughs> I, I say I maybe was an unintentionally raised with the confidence of a straight white man, and it has served me well. So let this be lesson number one. Apply for jobs that you think are interesting, that you can make the case of why you could be the right person for it, even if it means you have to learn on the job. Don't just apply for the stuff that you are actually qualified for. So I applied to all these listings and I got exactly one interview and it was at the Metropolitan Opera. I knew nothing about opera. You say, well, Christina, you play classical piano. It's true, but it's a whole different world. It's like these micro niche worlds and opera is its own niche world. So I showed up and they said, look, you're really young. We've never had anyone this young and you know, you're kind of new to this world, but you're smart and it seems like this could be a good fit. We have one fear, however, your references say you like to come in and change things. And we don't want that. We want you to do exactly the job as it is described and nothing more. Can you do that? And I was desperate. I had $600 in my bank account after paying first, last, and a deposit on an illegal sublet. And I had no other interviews. So I had to get this job. And I said, listen, you know, I'll, I'll say anything. Yes, I can do this. And they said, no, 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 like we're serious. We don't even want you to ask to change a single thing in your first year here. And I was like, okay. Because what I heard was, after one year, you will be totally open to all of my ideas. And that was not what they said, but that's what I heard. And so I agreed. I agreed to this and I took this job. And for a year, I kept my mouth shut. This was on, it was called the Rehearsal Associate. It's sort of a mix between operations and diva management, some contract stuff, a lot of scheduling, a lot of logistics, which is great for my brain. And I realized that was like the first moment I realized I was like, oh, there's this interesting intersection of like math and operations and logistics and the arts. And I, I like that. That's 
It's pretty interesting to me. Okay. Anyway, long story short, I get to the end of my year and I show up with a notebook of all of these ideas I have. But you lasted a year. I did. I did. I lasted my year. I lasted a year and I showed up and I was like, look, I have all these ideas. And this one idea in particular, I think we should write a computer program that will completely basically outsource my entire job. There's no reason you should have a human doing this. This is all optimization theory. And I have written a 26 page spec for that program. I would like to write that program and then you can find somewhere else to put me in this company after you no longer need me to do this job. And my boss kicked me out of her office. (laughs) She's like, absolutely not. So I went over her head to her boss and he's like, what did she say? And I was like, well, she said no. He's like, then why are you in my office? Get out of my office. And I went over his head to the head of the entire department and she kicked me out of her office. And I went over her head to the general manager of the entire met and he was like, absolutely not. You are smart. Go to grad school. This is not a fit. So I decided to go to business school because I didn't know anything about business, but it became very clear that the people who run the place get to make the decisions about how and what gets built, how things get run. I liked the performing side of the arts, but I knew there were people who were better at that than me. But it seemed like there was a real need for someone on the management side of the arts who could run a place with like a forward-thinking, innovative mindset. So I stuck around another year while I applied to business schools. And I did a little bit of the Paris Geller thing. I also applied to law schools while I was at it because why not? And and like, you know, grin and bear it through another year of, of do not change anything. But it became clear that like I needed to, to get out and figure out what else I could fit into uh, into my interests. Wow. I think the other thing that really stands out that you didn't mention that I just want to double down on is like this whole going to the managers, manager, manager, manager. It's like quite uncommon for someone <laughs> just to point <laughs> so out. So it turns out, yes, yes. At 23, I did not have a clear understanding of my role in the like total organization and that 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 would not be well received. That that did not occur to me. I thought that good ideas would win out and I just needed to find a champion who would listen to my good idea. And to be clear, 12 years later, the Met had a huge negotiation standoff. They almost had a strike with the performance unions over overtime pay and scheduling inefficiencies because the Met was bleeding money and wanted to cut everyone's pay. And the performers were like, don't cut our per like hour per rehearsal pay, just be more efficient at scheduling the rehearsals so that we're called to rehearse less. And you'll you'll meet your, uh, your budgetary lines. And I was like, I still have the uh, computer program outline, because that was exactly what I was proposing to do 12 years earlier. But now you have to pay me as a consultant. <laughs> Sometimes that does feel good. I just think it's it's remarkable that you thought you could do that and you did do that. I think it's very entrepreneurial and I think it, it's it's a foreshadowing of what was to come because a lot of people, when they're in a role that they don't like or they don't think to change it, they don't want it, you know, the boss, they get the one no and that's it. But I think that that's like an early sign that not only were you like going to be good at maybe management of this kind of business entity related to the arts, but also that like, you make stuff happen and you're very entrepreneurial and you obviously had a whole founding journey as well. But I just, for me, that really stands out is like, oh God, yeah, no one does that at 23. And I love it, (laughs) by the way, to be very clear. I think it's amazing. Thank you. Um, And I resonate deeply and I've done similar things. Okay. So then tell me what's next. So we apply to business school. 
How is business school? What are we thinking? It is eye-opening. So I don't know anything about business. I show up and I say I say so in my application. I was like, look, I don't know the difference between a stock and a bond because my family has never had either. We have savings accounts and we have credit cards. But I am smart and I will figure it out before I show up to campus. <laughs> I like literally wrote this in my application because I wasn't, this was crucial. I wasn't going to pretend to be someone I was not. I wasn't going to pretend I knew anything about business. If they wanted me in their class, it was going to be because I brought something very different, which was this world of the nonprofit, performing arts, and this perspective that I, I assumed, rightly so, that none of the other students were going to bring, which would make case method, conversations, much more interesting. And I was right. So I showed up to Harvard and I had a lot to learn and it was great. I mean, I could ask all the stupid questions in class because I wasn't pretending that I knew what was going on. And I think a lot of my classmates really appreciated that I could ask those stupid questions. But I was smart and I learned a lot and I did really well. And then I fell into the world of startups because I showed up to business school three weeks before Lehman Brothers collapsed. And so my two years at Harvard were the two years of the financial crisis, and there were suddenly no jobs. <laughs> and so the career services at Harvard suddenly got really excited about entrepreneurship because then we could all start our own companies and we could all be reported as employed at graduation, which was important for all of the rankings. And so that really became a meaningful sort of pivot in Harvard Business School's history of being much more startup oriented, really attracting that entrepreneurial student and building that community. And that's where I discovered that tech startups had a lot in common with the arts world. This idea that you come up with a new idea, you recruit folks who believe in your vision, and you build something out of nothing with like $7 and some duct tape, and you see if anyone likes it. You see if they laugh at the joke. You see if they click on the button. And then you iterate, and you keep fixing it until it clicks. And I was like, oh, this is really fun, and it has sustainable business model instead of begging rich people for donations all the time. Maybe I should go into startups. Now, I did not recognize that raising venture capital is actually still begging rich people for money. So it's not all that different, even from that perspective. <laughs> but it felt like a brave new world. And so that's how I ended up in the startup world. Oh my gosh, I love that. That's so funny you say that. I currently work in venture capital, so... I know very well. I know very well what that's like on both sides. Okay, so you got excited about the startup world. And then you have your own founder journey, as you say in your bio, serial entrepreneur. So tell me, what were the ideas that were like under your skin that you were excited about? Or was it just, I know I want to start something and I want to be employed by the time I leave and I need to start something, anything. So my first startup was to solve a problem that I faced myself, and I founded it with one of my classmates who also struggled with this, and this was to find work clothes that weren't hideous and that actually fit us. So as I said, I'm six feet tall. My co-founder had really long legs. She was like 5'10", 5'9", and we were really struggling to find grown-up professional clothes. This was still back in like 2010. People still wore suits to work, particularly in consulting and finance and law. There were some pretty like conservative industries that were still pretty formal. And we were really struggling to find clothes that felt like us and that 
weren't hideous. It didn't feel like we were playing dress up in our mom's closet, but that we could afford. And so we decided to build our own company called Quincy Apparel that was modeled after this was sort of the same era that Bonobos had just come out for men and Warby Parker had just launched in the glasses space and Mod Cloth had come out in like these really cute kind of dresses. Like this was the beginning of direct-to-consumer venture-backed brands. And this was also in the era where as long as you had a website, you could call yourself a tech company and you could raise tech venture capital, even though we were we were a fashion brand with like a website. This is not a tech company. So long story short, we raised VC money from the wrong investors. We didn't get enough runway. We didn't, we didn't raise enough to actually get far enough to build out what we, what we said we wanted to build. And we just ran out of capital, like halfway through getting, you know, the traction that we needed. And it was devastating. Like we had product, we had customers. They loved our clothes. I still have our clothes. I still wear them. They're amazing. But we failed. We had to shut down. And it was this moment where I realized I had never failed in anything in my entire life, like ever. And it was so opposite my internal narrative. Like I succeeded things. <laughs> I I don't know how to fail that I like I went home and I poured myself into bed and I stayed there for like three weeks. I watched all seven seasons of the West Wing and I talked to no one. And I was like, I don't know who I am or what I should do or where I fit. Like, also, I'm broke. I'm broke beyond broke. I had spent every dollar I had building this company and I had put my loans on forbearance. So actually, my interest was accruing. and I owed more money than I did at the moment that I graduated. And I was really, really lost. And to your point of go ask people who you are, I literally, I did that. I went out, I emailed everyone I knew and said, I need, I need you to get coffee with me. Also, you have to pay for the coffee because I'm broke and I need your help figuring out who I am and what I should do next. And I did 70 coffee chats in 30 days, which is a lot of coffee. And I asked them three questions. When have you seen me happiest? What do you come to me for? Like, what's that moment? You're like, oh, I should see what Christina thinks about this. And where do I stand out against my peers? Like, where do I peek at things? And I needed that sort of outside perspective because I, I didn't know who I was. And after all those conversations, I was hearing a lot of the same things from people who had known me 10 years, from people who had known me for six months. I was feeling this really consistent feedback that I was like, you tell great stories, you help other people find their story, and you like to build things from the ground up. Like zero to one is your sweet spot. Like some people are great at 10 to 100, you are great at zero to one. And I'm happiest when I'm in control of my calendar. I will work really hard, but I want to do it on my terms. I want that autonomy and that flexibility. And so it helped me sort of get back on my feet. I, I found a job. I joined a startup that was based in Boston, wanted to open a New York campus, a New York office. I opened their New York office and then helped them launch Berlin, London, and Chicago. Ended up running global comms and marketing for them. Then I was like, okay, I'm ready to build something of my own again. Stepped away, built something for girls in computer science next. Raised seven and a half million dollars for that. That was super fun. Got it up and running. It was like, great. Hand it off to someone to keep running. I want to go back to the beginning and start something again. So, so really understanding where I fit in that process. 
I'm the zero to one, maybe zero to 10, but I'm not the 10 to 100. And that my sort of specialty is in kind of the marketing, communications, storytelling piece of this help me get a real understanding of like, I can do a lot of things and I have, but there's a specific spot where I am amazing. And there's a whole bunch of worlds where I'm like, just okay. <laughs> I, oh, that really resonates everything you're saying. I think we've all had those three weeks where we question everything and binge watch a show. But I think what defines those who succeed and those who don't are the ones who say, okay, I'm not just going to maybe take slow steps and figure it out. You were like, 70 chats in 30 days. I'm done feeling sorry for myself. Let's go. And I think that hustle is really like evident in a lot of what you've done. And that is why you've been successful. You can't raise also seven and a half million dollars of venture dollars and not get like, you know, a hundred no's for every yes. So I just respect the hustle. I think like that's something that, you know, acknowledging that you fail, acknowledging that you have those three weeks, acknowledging all that, but but like not letting that define you and still then kind of bouncing back and finding your place. I appreciate you sharing your story. Well, I want to be mindful of time. So I have one more question before we wrap. You've obviously shared so many gems with us today, but we do like to end every show with just like the one headline piece of advice that you have for all 20-somethings. These are entrepreneurs. These are artists. These are, you know, want to be doctors, want to be lawyers, want to be have no idea, but like know they want to contribute productively to society. What is that one piece of advice you want them to take? You have to figure out how to tell your story. Don't make other people connect your dots. So part of where I came up with this phrase, human Venn diagram, was because I was really struggling to explain, you know, I do all these different things. I connect all these different ideas, these different people. And on the surface, if you look at my resume or my LinkedIn, like you might think I'm a dilettante or I'm kind of flaky. And I was like, that's not it. And I was getting frustrated that no one else could see. And I realized it's because I hadn't done the work to explain who I was and what I brought to the table. I wanted them to do the work to understand me instead of me doing the work. And so I really put effort into how can I tell my story and help you understand why I'm awesome and what I can do for you. And it became so much easier for other people to say yes to what I had to offer. So it doesn't matter who you are right now, if that's going to be who you are 10 years from now, who cares? But you have to put the work into connecting the dots of your story and figuring out how to explain who you are, what you care about, how do you introduce yourself, whatever that is. You are in charge of your narrative. And if other people can't see you, it means you haven't figured out how to tell that story just yet. So that's your work. I love that. I think this shows up in the one minute, tell me about yourself. This shows up in the bio I read about you at the beginning. This shows up in, in all those ways and spending the time really reflecting and getting clear on what your through lines are. I love that. And that is actually true. I think it's like people just haven't connected the dots yet. And that's why it's confusing. And that's why you don't know. That's exactly it. And there's a whole chapter on this in my book, The Portfolio Life, if you want a little bit of guidance. So tell everyone now, before we wrap, where they yes. can find you on social, where they can find your books, also where they can find your TED Talks. You can listen back to the bio and like listen to kind of how I've described it and obviously type in your name on YouTube, but give everyone like a quick rundown on where they can find you and all the things. 
Sure, sure. So ChristinaWallace.com has links to all the things, but PortfolioLife.com, the Portfolio Life on any of your favorite retailers. And then on social, I am at CM Walla. That's Christina Marie Walla, CM Walla, basically everywhere. So uh, happy to have you follow, message, ask questions. I love talking with everyone. I love it. And just to clarify too, Christina is C-H-R-I-S because, you know, Christina can be a few. We can just do C-R, we can do K-R, we can do, (laughs) it it changes. That's true. Amazing. Well, Christina, thank you for coming. It was so great to chat. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Erica. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Dear 20-something. If you enjoyed it, you can give us a follow over at Dear 20-something on Instagram or subscribe here or anywhere you get podcasts. 